you may be trapped in a simulation. Or, this is Feature, please. A hateful voyage to the Delta Quadrant. My name is Joseph. Peter here. Peter, uh, we were pretty hyped for this one, man. Did it live up to your expectations? The bad expectations, absolutely. Uh, your Viger pleasing expectations. Yeah, I, I would say so. This was uh, this was a real interesting episode, and I'm using interesting in the most kind way possible. It's uh, the good kind of bad for me, my man. I cannot wait to get into this with you, so let's just do it. Let's just jump in. What do you say? Let's go for it. So what are we watching today, Peter? This is going to be season two, episode 23, The Thaw. Whew. And you know what we start with? We start with the thing that makes the Lady Trek watchers go wild, and that's some sweet, sweet clarinet solo. We got a scene. It's uh, it's Kim playing the clarinet. You got Tom Paris laying out on the couch, and uh, then there's a banging at the wall. and whatever ensign shares room or, you know, a wall with Harry apparently isn't down with the clarinet practice to which, and again, these Voyager episodes do a good job of throwing some shit out there that I'm immediately like, why in the future when they have all these crazy materials, would you not have space soundproof walls? Yeah, they do momentarily entertain the reason why I'll give them that. Like they explain why, you can hear through the walls because of the fluid induction coils or something that that happened to carry sound that happens to be on that wall. You know, what? good enough answer. It's all I need. And I can take the comedic um, routine of a neighbor banging a broom into the floor, telling someone to shut up. Two things go on in this scene, and the scene's interesting because this clarinet hangout scene between Kim and Paris was originally recorded for Death Wish. And it kind of starts to prove a point that a lot of these cold opens and elements of the shows aren't necessarily part of the episode that you're watching. So uh, the this scene in particular was from Death Wish. That was the episode where you've got uh, Q who wants to commit suicide. Winnie the Q. Yeah, Winnie the Q. Uh, and you know, it didn't fit with the pacing in that episode. So they just pop it in here. And we've seen that on a couple other things like, you know, where there's the first Starfleet murder and Tom's gambling schemes and some of this other stuff. Uh, but two things go on in this scene and this scene is arguably the best part of this episode. One, it's, it's kind of starting to beat me over the head. Now we've seen that Tom has his nice, uh, crushed velvet shirt collection. It's kind of weird we never see these guys out of uniform like ever. I think the only people we've seen out of uniform on the ship have been um, uh, Chakotay and Balana when they were doing their hobo racquetball game. Right, right. And then uh, Chakotay's got his drug rug. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I remember. Action punch. Oh, and then, you know, you've got the Tom Paris uh, sexy pajama look that he was going with after he was on his spy mission. So we've seen yeah, that. But to be fair, you know, at that point, he was no longer superficially Starfleet. You know, he was undercover. It's just, you know, I feel like in Next Gen, we at least saw these guys wearing their ugly ass future space clothes uh, on a pretty regular basis during off duty hours. Them always in their jumpsuits. It feels weird. 
the big takeaway from this scene, and maybe even this episode, is a throwaway line that Paris pops out. Jump back to the Dragon Con discussions, how the staff and the writers agonized over every little word in a sentence. You know, they said uh, Neelix, he wanted to throw sir on the end of something. And there was all this belly aching and, and conversation with the writer rooms on a hotline. I, I can't accept that anything in this series has flown under the radar or is not a conscious decision by the producers and the show to establish lore for the world. Right. So, uh, when Harry's like, God, you think they would have made soundproof walls and he turns to Paris and Paris says, well, look, Harry, uh, you know, this ship was built for combat performance, not musical performance. Nobody was expecting us to take a long trip. This, this establishment of what Voyager is supposed to be, and we've talked a few times about what the intrepid class is and isn't. Is it a deep space, deep space exploration vehicle, as you know, some of the wikis would suggest? Is it a ship of war? Is it a ship of peace? Is it this? Is that? This throws all of it into disarray. I mean, by Paris's words, and you know, take it as as a convict out of a, some New Zealand garden. <laughs> Up to date on uh, on Federation's uh, design philosophies, obviously. Yeah, but you know he's saying that hey, these intrepid classes are uh, short range war vessels, uh, not the long distance deep space exploration vehicles that we have been led to believe. So I can't take this as a throwaway gaffe. I mean, this seems like a pretty intentional scene that was moved from one episode over into another, and, and here we are. I had a super duper Trek nerd quote this line at me when we had uh, an initial discussion about uh, Voyager's capabilities as a vessel. And we had a talking point that I was using to promote the podcast on Reddit. This is the one and only time that I feel like they say that it's a short range, like they suggest that it's not intended for long duration and that this ship is intended to fight. And while I completely buy that the ship is capable in a fight, because it has such advanced technology, nothing about it appears to be a, a quote unquote warship. It's uh, it seems like one of those that it was intended to be one of those vessels that does work at the edges of Federation space and maybe isn't intended to go on like years long solo voyages. But but clear, it's supposed to be out there and be able to operate independently for some duration and then be able to return especially since it can move so fast. That's what seems right to me. And I disregard anything else that counterdicts that that uh, that canon, even if it's in the show itself, because you just can't trust the writers. Fair points all around, but I'm going to say that this is some pretty compelling stuff because it is the forefront of a scene. But uh I don't know what we find out that Harry's got a hot date with someone that Tom has been trying to put it in an oboe player. Yeah, uh, a lieutenant. And it's interesting to hear them talk about, you know, Ensign, this lieutenant that, you know, there's some pretty decent rank people sprinkled throughout the ship uh, and on the bridge crew. Specifically. I mean, you got Lieutenant Howdy Doody out there, so anything's possible. Yeah, but, you know, on the bridge itself, it's it's not that well populated by senior staff, yet they are the senior staff. Sorry, it's not well populated by high ranking officers, but, you know, senior staff, the, the heroes of the ship uh, do seem to get some special privileges. Well, the next bit is that they find the planet. 
so Voyager's cruising along and lo and behold, they come across just this this planet that they thought they were going to be able to get supplies at that Neelix had directed them to, or at least suggested he directed them to so they could do some trading. And it's super fucked up. And they find out it got super fucked up because a solar flare essentially completely ruined its atmosphere and and its biosphere and wiped out, as far as they can tell, the civilization that was on the planet. They do some digging around and some some poking with their sensor array. And eventually they uh, trigger a welcome mat message that says, hey, you're getting this because you're a strange space person that wandered by and you're probably wondering why is this place all fucked up well it's fucked up because of some shit with a solar flare and we're trying to figure out a way to survive it and some of us uh we're in cryostasis and we're gonna come out eventually so leave us the fuck alone yeah by the way if you're the vidians or the newly uh well no kazan's got loose what 15 years ago i i don't think it was quite that short a time i think it was longer but the Kazon wouldn't have been loose for that long, but the Vidians definitely would have been out there thieving on organs all the live long day. Yeah, this place is basically like um, frozen dinner world for the Vidians to come through and harvest. This <clears throat> episode, I feel, is one of the classic Voyager, hey, we've got a story we want to tell and common sense be damned. We're going to just ramrod into it. And I think this episode really starts to establish a vehicle for that type of storytelling to come in the form of crew incompetence. And I think that's, you know, that's the big sin, I think, in Star Trek is that we are given these crews on very advanced vessels, Starfleet minus the insane Admiralty, you know, Correct me if I'm wrong, but the general assumption should be that we are dealing with enlightened scientists who are not big fucking dummies. Correct? Yes. It, particularly the captain who is herself like a lifelong scientist. And when we have these ramrod episodes, that's just get us to whatever little quirky story we're trying to tell. When we are presented with people who should be very smart and very rational and and thoughtful people who are able to... Uh, reason beyond the capabilities of your average eighth grader. It really takes me out of the experience. Uh, so, yeah, you've got Neelix up on the bridge there for some input and how Neelix isn't aware that this planet's been out of commission for like 20 years is kind of. Do you see where Neelix was sitting when they rolled up on this planet? I did not. Where was he sitting? In the fucking captain's chair. Huh? Like. That's the other thing that drew me into this scene a little bit. Every captain's chair in Star Trek is like always super badass. It's like if you were visiting the set, that's the place you would want to sit because just everything's happening around you. You're smack dab in the middle. Voyager has the most. I don't know, the biggest letdown of a captain's because you're sitting side by side with Chakotay and like that little end table they have between them is like the technical center of the bridge. It's just not an impressive, cool, fun place. I think Jane really got ripped off on this one having to be hip to hip with uh chakotay so yeah why not let the the dirty space cat just sit in your seat but you've got a whole planet 
And out of this entire plant, when they say some of us, you know, survived and we're going to recolonize and repopulate, what they're saying is four people, right? Yes, five. It was five. Five people and, and you know, hey, just leave us alone because we're down here. Like, it looks sketchy as hell. But they go, okay, hey, we think we might have found them. And uh, I'm assuming this was maybe kind of a budget episode because rather than just beam down to the surface, they beam this entire big uh, cryo um, facility that they have interned themselves in up to the Voyager. And they get Bolana and, uh, you know, Kim and, and uh, scientist captain down to the cargo bay to go check it out. And they find out that these five people are in a cryogenic preservation mode, but their brains are active and basically they're in the matrix. Yeah, so they kind of determined that because of the activity of their brain, they've stayed active in this joint computer program that all of their brains are now tied into. And that, of course, might be the explanation as to why they haven't woken up, even though they have they've also been able to determine they have, they have an escape hatch that's essentially available to them to leave in the form of information about the environment whenever they want. It's just in, in just the, the stupidest decision making uh, that you could possibly have, aside from beaming up a bunch of alien technology from a, a wasted planet that may or may not give you space aids. Uh, they decided the only option they have to deal with these aliens in these cry in these cryotubes is to go ahead and put two of their own people in this alien technology and let them be frozen so that they can jump into the matrix and see what's going on for themselves. Never mind that their brains may not be compatible and therefore this could just like turn them into uh, you know Lenny from Mice and Men. You know, like suddenly Harry Kim comes out and he just wants to pet a mouse. They have no idea what the hell the impact of this is going to be, but they're like, ah, fuck it. We'll just put some doodly bits on your on your brain as a little bit of backup. Sure. I mean, if, if it goes poorly, we could just go back a couple light years. We can grab the corpse of the other Harry Kim. Let's roll around out there. And maybe the doctor can revive that one instead. You know, we got a spare. So fuck it. It's a ridiculous premise. The the scene, they, they call a full staff meeting on this, <clears throat> which, you know, we don't really get a lot of, again, in Voyager. So this is a big deal. We've got the whole, you know, senior staff there, and they're deliberating on what do they do. Based on all of the other actions we've seen by Voyager, wouldn't the, the reasonable thing just leave these people alone? They have a way to get out. We didn't cause this situation. Prime directive, blah, 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 all that other stuff. Just leave it the fuck alone and, and move on. Not let's make this, you know, a, a major incident. There's nothing on the planet we need. You know, if these guys are alive and presumably happy, just just leave them off. But, you know, Chakotay starts rolling off this. It's our imperative. We must go on this uh, cockamamie wild goose chase to find these cyber people and bring them back and, and save the day and, uh, you know, galaxy police this thing. It makes no sense for them to make this choice, but they make it anyway. You make it anyways. And my first question is, why not just send the doctor in there? This seems like a great doctor opportunity, putting two of your senior staff members, your main engineer, your main science guy in harm's way. And for the record, can you describe to me a single situation where a Matrix style VR full immersion brain connection 
that we have ever seen in any science fiction anywhere where virtual death does not immediately equal real life death. Yeah, I mean, they should know this from their own technology. I mean, like this should not be like some sort of fucking stunner to the goddamn Federation. You got your holodeck, which isn't even your brain trapped in like a virtual hell. It's just some some harmless holograms around you with your safety locks. And even that thing's like malfunctioning four times out of five. You know, they just again, the the unforgivable crime here is just your Star Trek Starfleet dudes being so stupid that they ignore every red flag along the way here and say, hey, let's just jump into what is for all intents and purposes, virtual quicksand and see what happens. Oh, also in this uh, this cryopod of five people, two of the cryopods are like dehydrated poops of what (laughs) used to be people. They look like uh, out of Batman 89 when uh, Jack Napier shocks the dude with the the joy buzzer like that's what this carp corpse looks like minus you know smoke coming off of his teeth and and they say clearly like the these people died of heart attacks and the doctor's like yeah this wasn't natural like the environment that they were in probably is what made them have heart attacks so they know that it's danger that they're gonna go into this like they know for sure they're not like oh it's gonna be great no like they know it's like it's probably fucked up yeah they're gonna do it anyway Something in there virtually killed these people physically. Uh, Red shirts, Peshaw. No, send in bridge crew. And off the bridge crew goes and they, you know, pop up into a close camera shot with a little bit of summoning sickness. And like, oh, you know, you feeling okay? you're feeling good. Great. And then the camera pans out to what immediately struck me. Do you remember that uh, music video? Groove is in the heart by D-Light. I'm not going to sing it. <laughs> it's the song with the slide whistle, and it's like that 60s retro twisty. Okay, yeah, yeah. Psychedelic. Okay. It's like a budget version of that. This is one of the most hideous sets I think we've seen in Voyager. Yeah. You know, at this point, I would have preferred we got the South uh, California water plant. I uh, I described it as the Holiday Inn fetish convention of your worst nightmares. This r- most it's the most rinky dink, stupid bargain basement looking, quote unquote, carnival that they were going for. Sort of like dark carnival type of thing. I I'm not trying to like dip a, a toe too deep into the obvious insane clown posse references that can be made here oh i will i i don't want to i want to go too far there but professionals i'll leave it to you it's like watching it 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 was like watching season one tng level hokiness yeah as this starts to unfold before you that's the only way else to describe it and that's perfect it this might as well have been a, a rejected script off of season one so you're in a set that looks like it was designed from the head up or the, the you know, the, the ground up to elicit a migraine out of the viewers at home. And then you've got a bunch of what I believe are professional Cirque du Soleil performers. Yeah, my wife called it that she she looked in the background and said, those are all Cirque du Soleil performers and said, I would know my my gay French acrobats anywhere. And apparently that's the case. They hired Cirque du Soleil people to do all the like contortions and 
little stuff in the background, which almost seems like they really overspent like to get people who are way overqualified for what they're having them do. Yeah. Um, and they're wearing masks and skin tight outfits and none of this stuff really looks nice. It's all kind of hideous. So you got the headache room and you've got a bunch of weirdos and circus midgets up in your face pulling at you. And my wife's watching this with me and she's like, these uh, Starfleet guys don't seem to give two shits about the horror that they just walked into. And I said, you're absolutely right. I mean, every red flag that should be out and waving hard, you've just clearly wandered into a nightmare and they don't care at all. Yeah, they don't. They're they just waltzing through it like it's no fucking big deal. Talking to the midget, you know, having conversations with the giant like woolly monster. There's like a big evil snuffleupagus, right? That's basically the woolly monster you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong, but by the voice and the height, I'm assuming that was uh, Mr. Hom. Oh, was it? That would make sense. I mean, he's already, you know, and that's uh, Lurch from uh, Adam's family for anybody else uh, at home who's not familiar with TNG. But I assume that was him. I, I guess I could go back and check the wiki. But if it was him, it's a ways that they had a hood on him. And of course, in the process of walking through this obvious red flag nightmare extravaganza, uh, they run into the character credited in the opening uh, credits as the clown played by uh, Michael McKean, a.k.a. Chuck McGill. If you if you watch uh, Better, Better Call Saul at all, which is a great show. It's fucking awesome. And uh, I will say this. Uh, as weird and bizarre and qualitatively poor as this episode is, everything that Mike McKeon does in this fucking episode is awesome. <laughs> it is. And and that is right here the the hardship of this episode is this is a shit episode on a shit premise with uh people doing the stupidest things possible. And you've got one of the best guest stars that I have seen in a Star Trek episode and certainly in Voyager. And I want to say they squander him. But it's like this dude carries the entire episode on his back from here out. And, you know, up to this point, what's the biggest thing he's been in? Maybe Laverne and Shirley. I mean, he's been in some pretty cool stuff. Oh, he, was do, no- he was doing uh, he was doing SNL by then. I mean, he was Mike, Mike McKean was was doing shit in the 90s. Nothing serious to the point of, of Better Call Saul, though, at least that I can think of off the top of my head. So, you know, maybe he didn't have the gravity then and maybe... I'm watching this with, uh, you know, with some preconceptions because I know what he's capable of and, and, and I might be a little too heavy on his side here, but I think he knocks what's a, a shit script out of the park and body language and everything else. All the other guys in the background, right? They're wearing uh, these little skin tight outfits and I don't know, Harley Quinn masks and stuff like that. They've got him in these wrinkly fabric gray pajamas with a hood and uh some gray and white face paint so it's kind of like a space clown it's it's not scary it looks interesting and it shows his facial features off you know well enough that he's able to get some pretty good body language acting throughout the episode he gives it 180 percent on the on the whole idea behind the character and i i, I adored every line 
every scene. He's not there's not a single one he's not giving maximum effort. And you know what? That's the kind of cheese that makes this this kind of situation work. It's a real fucking shame he's wasted on such nonsense. But he he, he makes it watchable. I mean, could you imagine trying to watch this shit and get through it if you didn't have like, oh, I want to see the next scene Mike McKeon's in because this character is ridiculous? Grab Winnie the Q and plug him in here as the clown. And you have, you know, the potential for the worst. Oh, oh, Flip side of that, though, <laughs> take Michael McKean and plug him in as Q2 in that, you know, Death Wish episode. And I think you might have had a, a very different animal on your hands. We get introduced to the clown. And we find out that there are still three survivors of the colony and that they have been basically imprisoned uh, in this virtual environment. And that the Matrix VR simulation that they're running in is a shared consciousness with each of the brains kind of kicking and processing power to keep this environment stabilized. Uh, But the computer system that's administrating it had a unforeseen consequence where it started picking up on uh, subliminal thoughts and as a byproduct created this clown character which is an amalgamation of the shared fear of the survivors and self-doubt and self-loathing and all the other kind of negative, like armist skin of evil, leftover nasty parts. And so basically the psycho AI that accidentally got created by their nightmares is Freddy Krueger. I mean, that's the best way to describe it is that this guy can kill you in your dreams. Literally. And uh, he does it by putting you in a cheap plastic guillotine and cutting your head off. And correct me if I'm wrong, but that uh, that executioner, was that the big show from from WWF? <laughs> I, I I don't think so. Hold on. I got to know now. Let's see. It's- I mean, there is a WWF crossover, a famous WWF crossover later on. But it's like uh, a big fat dude wearing a a unitard with a little mask on. I mean, it, I guess it could be any big wrestler type, but I, I got some nah, big show. Nah, it's not the big show. Hmm. Um, and yeah, so he's become basically the king of this VR hell. And what's cool is anytime that he's talking, all of the other performers, which are an extension of his consciousness, essentially, they're kind of like a mood ring for what he's talking about. And I found myself looking less at him and more at what's going on behind him to see how these Circus Soleil performers were kind of like pantomiming around the concepts and the lines that he was reading and being a more outward expression of his mood at that moment. They do a great job. They really do. Uh, There's a lot of great beats and use of the camera in having them all act in in sync with each other like a bunch of creepy clown people that again, if the episode wasn't just a bunch of batshit nonsense, it's a lot of great effort to create a creepy atmosphere. Like there's a whole like little like dance routine they do when he's making fun of Harry Kim and that sort of thing. Like, and these and Cirque Soleil performers, if you ever see um silent Hill movie, the silent Hill movie, I loved it. Yeah, I really liked it too. It's one of Stevie's favorites, and she sat with me once and was like, "You got to fucking watch this." Watched it. Remember the nurses in the hall? 
I'm a boy, of course. I remember the nurses of the hall. Yeah, they're all Cirque du Soleil performers. Really? Yeah. So hmm. that's that's the kind of shit that they're able to pull off. The production crime of this episode is that these scenes were too well lit. I think that for the dark aspects that they were going for throughout this, had they calmed some of the set lighting down, that they would have gotten a much better creepy vibe. And a lot of the cheap, stupid costumes they had these uh, performers in, if they were just kind of shadowy figures in the background, they would have gotten much, much better mileage. So, yeah, instead, it's, it's lit like a fucking Holiday Inn, so... Yeah, it's not as creepy. <laughs> yeah. Um, the Starfleet people, you know, Harry and Bellana, they're able to talk to the colonists. They find out, you know, what this clown is, why these people haven't popped out. They find out that, in fact, the two dead bodies in the cryo uh, tubes were beheaded because they were naughty. And this clown was establishing dominance. The clown's motivation on all of this is that this this simulated world requires brains in the network to keep it going. And he does not want to let anybody leave this environment because if he does, uh, the simulation will end. And, you know, he's not even willing to let, you know, most of the people go because if he's only got two people left or one person left, if that body gets sick and dies, well, now he's dead too. So the guy's pretty forward thinking. The other neat thing about him is anybody who enters the system after 10 minutes, he's been able to catch up with their their thoughts and their brain activity, and he absorbs their consciousness and their memories into him. So 10 minutes in, Balana and Harry, he's able to start rattling off uh, Earth quotes, Starfleet protocol, and basically he knows everything there is to know about these people and starts throwing some pretty salty low blows uh, some mama jokes at Balana and and ringing Harry's bell pretty good too. Eventually, they negotiate with the clown as to to truthfully to say, "Listen, you got to let one of us out of here to talk to Captain Janeway because they're going to try and do everything they can to force us out of here without any other information." And yeah, that may give us brain damage, but. You know, you're not going to leave her with any other choice. So you got to let loving one of us go. And ultimately, Bellana, of course, is selected to head back to uh, the real world and let Janeway know there there are some problems. And the next scene is in a very unnecessarily dark briefing room. Speaking of lighting. Oh, yeah. Where they where they they decided they need to turn the dimmer switch down a bit because they're talking about some serious shit. And they start to discuss what it is that they can do uh, about the situation they have now thrust themselves into by having their crew members download their brains into alien computers. Let's go ahead and call this guilty lighting. This is the lights in the briefing room when everybody knows they fucked up and they were really stupid and nobody is willing to look each other in the face because of the shared guilt through this whole thing of like a, a big face palm, like, Oh God, how could we not see this terrible dilemma coming? Uh, Neelix is a really shitty suggestion that, that gets like, he gets ashamed for having suggested. And so does cast by proxy to their credit. You know, they weren't part of this initial bumble fuck idea in the first place. So <laughs> I don't think anybody's, 
nobody in this dark room is in any uh, you know position to finger point at anybody else. You know, the ultimate thing here is that the clown will let people out, but he wants replacements, right? And the whole time they start talking about this, like, well, we're not just going to put anybody in there and condemn them to virtual hell and this and that. And I'm like, excuse me, you've you've got a virtual prison now, which sounds to me perfect for the murderers and treason and all the other vile shit that's been going on in this ship. Uh, that the perpetual <laughs> excuses, well, we can't just lock them in the brig forever. Sounds like you got a really great option on the table now. <laughs> yeah, let's put them in this torture device. Although you put Lon Suter in there and the the, the fucking computer just be like, nope, 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 <laughs> nope, nope, no, those are no, no, no. It's the abyss staring back at me. I don't fucking want any of the I'm out. I'm done. Just self-terminate. Just turn itself off. Yeah, that should have been the solution. Find me Lon Suter. That's the solution. I was so fucking batshit crazy. This computer just decides to the fucking seppuku itself. And that's how we get everyone out. But I mean, you know, I know it's not very Starfleet, but it does seem like a pretty legit solution to, hey, we're going to have more problems on this long voyage home. I mean, Jonas's stuff was pretty heinous. And had he not yeah, been... Yeah, but jo- Jonas got dumped into space hell by a, by a filthy cat, so... But had he not, you know, I mean, he would have been... They're not going to execute even for treason. Uh, you know, throw him in with the clown. I think that'd be a hell of a <laughs> maquis. You better shape up or you're going to be going in with the, the space juggalos here. Yes, yeah, stage one punishment for maquis is a Dolby punch. <laughs> stage two, clown time. 15 mm-hmm. minutes. You're off to the dark carnival. Put your put your face makeup on. Take a swig of that Fago because you're going in. Ah, there we go. We've broken the seal. Yeah. We're getting there now. Here, here's a question, and this might be jumping ahead a little bit. Uh, obviously, the miners wanted to get out. And, uh, you know, it was their initial self-doubts that created the clown. Could the clown go away if you replaced fearful people? Like, you know, everybody in there was scared at that point and it just became a self-fulfilling prophecy. Do you think that had you put, you know, you started putting more people in and cycling the fear out, do you think that uh, the clown would have stuck around or that he would eventually fade over time? I think the nature of how the program work inevitably would lead to this because what it sounds like happened is over time, the program simply adapted as programs do to what the people connected to it are dwelling on in their thoughts. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, you know, as, as presuming these people are like humans, which I think they're intended to be humans tend to dwell on sh- their anxieties and fears and shit that bothers them way more than the positive stuff. So yeah, you can take it out initially, but ultimately they're going to start to have that anxiety like every moment of like, Oh, is it returning? Is it coming back? And then it's again, it's that self perpetuating cycle, that loop. Maybe it's any subversive thought. Maybe, you know, if you get a bunch of confident people in there, the fear will dissipate, but then you'll have some other ugly dominance shit. Yeah. Dominance or, you know, repressed sexuality or other rapey vibes or, or who knows what else. Let's say for a moment, though, that you could phase this clown out. And I know we're talking about brig applications, but 
I think there's some other legitimate conversations to be had about this thing. Anybody who is terminally ill that you need to put their body on stasis, but keep their mind going for, you know, assistance and input or a, a more humane uh, medical device. Think about the Vidians, people who their bodies are rotting. You can plug them into a cryo sleep and, and get them into a shared environment and, you know, basically end the phage and let them keep existing. I think you've got some real potential for other stories here. Not what this cryo device is ultimately, you know, constructed and brought into reality for, but I think you could have done some pretty creative stuff with it. But as it stands, the thing's just a torture device. You're right. I mean, if we if we separate ourselves from the reality of Star Trek writing for a second, uh, I think that the whole Vidian idea that this kind of suspending the bodies while keeping the minds active of their affected population man what a what a tool that you would be able to sell them in exchange for maybe like you know safe passage yeah like a, a like a little stamp card mm -hmm. that like 10 organ thefts <laughs> you know that you don't have to go through like 10 attempted organ thefts mm -hmm. you know one kidney buyback you know something like that it would have been worth at least a couple of those uh hell. get out of jail free action let, let me let me bounce this one off of you. You have a crew, a human crew that's going to live maybe 120 years, right? In the Delta Quadrant, stranded, and looking at a long-term flight home. Isn't this exactly the kind of deep sleep pods you would think that would have appeal to them while keeping the crew active in a virtual environment so they could still navigate the vessels and you know decide when people need to pop out a cryo to like go deal with problems in the real world. Yeah. As long, yeah. Like do shifts in the virtual environment before you get to take a little night, night time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like, makes hey, sense. how about you don't have to, you know, have your next time you're on earth being a, a rotten old man on death's door. Speaking of rotten old men and torture though, uh, you know, let's, let's put the what if box about what you could have done with this, pretty sweet technology away uh the clown is a real bastard and he's got harry in there and he starts tormenting him and harry is foolishly you know got this starfleet spunk of you can't crush me and you know just being needlessly antagonistic to what is essentially a god in their own domain so the guy starts uh picking on harry pretty heavily and he starts with uh probing into some of harry's deep fears and one of which is being useless and we see two reflections of that. One is as a little baby, he turns Harry into a crying baby in what is a very cute and very excellent infant-sized jumpsuit with the, you know, Star Trek stuff on it, which I thought was cool. Because I was going to say, don't you wish that uh, that existed when, you're, when your daughter was that age? I, I got her in the gold outfit. I had her in the gold shirt with little black pants, and that was that was a good Halloween photo. Uh, but then more impressively, he turns Harry into an old man. And Star Trek is infamous for having the worst aging makeup possible. Yet I thought the Harry, the old version, was super legit. Yeah, they 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 come back to the whole uh, Cirque du Soleil orgy now already in progress scene. And they start going through these fears as the clown starts to fuck with him, as you're saying. And the old man makeup's good. This is what reveling in monstrosity seems to really feel like. And you can 
that's all Mike McKinnon again. Like he, he, uh, Mike McKean rather, he, he really gets into the slow build torture of Harry Kim in this scene, starting with kind of the age manipulation and then going into the grand finale, which is when we find out Harry's parents took Harry uh, to a natural disaster once a radiation disaster <laughs> when he was like eight, which is fucking weird already. But uh, Harry went and wandered off and saw some gnarly ass radiation burns and sickness. He wasn't supposed to see in some emergency surgery. And ever since then, he's had an intense fear of hospitals and, and medical procedures. And the way they build into this with, uh, with, uh, with the clown man, Mike McKeon, he's like, his voice grows and he's like, by the end of the scene, he's like shouting at Harry Kim about how afraid that he must really be. And of course, Garrett Wayne can't act. So he's just like, just laying there just with a very unconvincing look on his face, but you're not focusing on him at all. It's everything else going on around it to sell it. That's actually really cool. It is cool. The lighting is still too intense. And despite Michael's acting, it's not a scary scene. Like you see what it's supposed to be and it works for, for Voyager, but I want to take you out and jump into the Orville, right? The episode. And I don't, I hope I don't ruin anything for anybody. If you haven't watched Orville, get out there and watch it. It is Star Trek. It is excellent. and is certainly worth your time. Um, but you remember the one where, uh, the chief of security, the real strong girl, she uh she starts going through like that that nightmare episode. Yes. And at the one point she gets pinned down by the doctor and restrained on the table, and the doctor pulls the same shit on her that uh, I'm gonna dissect you while you're alive, which I thought was genuinely a terrifying moment for you know network television. And I think there's a real strong connection between those two episodes in this point. Um, and maybe this performance in Voyager was a little stronger because I already had that Orville experience. And yeah, as uh, as the clown leans in with the scalpel to actually cut into Harry, I would say my favorite moment of the episode. <laughs> you see this hand come over his over his arm and move his finger around to the side, and boom, there's Robert Picardo. Turns out, uh, yeah, the doctor is actually compatible in here after all. And <laughs> yeah, and he he uh, he takes absolutely no shit from the clown, like nothing whatsoever. He uh, comes in very very Spock like, very matter of fact, and starts laying down the business, so to speak. Literally, like him coming in and his introduction to the episode of. You know, you're you're holding the scalpel wrong. Let me show you how to do it. Also, I'm here and I'm in charge now. Fucking awesome. Janeway has sent the doctor into the uh, to the mind torture matrix because ultimately because uh, the doctor is an artificial intelligence. He can't be read by it and can't be affected by it, can be pulled at any time. And he starts to negotiate with the clown trying to get him to give up uh, the uh, constituent uh, torturees that he presently has and uh, offers a artificial brain for the machine to be hooked up to, to be able to continue. 
but the clown is not buying it and determines that it would not it would be a far inferior experience and decides so he's not going to negotiate and and that's that and there's some dialogue where everyone tries to briefly convince him that it would be possible and one of the the captured aliens you know suggests a way that it could work ultimately it's all for naught and the doctor heads back to the real world to debrief the captain and balana about the conversation but what we find out is that this the the line that was dropped by the the alien leader who's one of the, the captured people was actually a clue that balana picks up on of how it is that the program can be disassembled uh you know it's a little loopholey if the clown knows what everybody's thinking and has full knowledge of all of their knowledge, then after 10 minutes, he should have absolutely realized that uh, he's been betrayed and that this guy just basically tried to, you know, sneak him a note that says how to turn the whole system off. But it goes unnoticed. Uh, The argument with the doctor has rattled him a little bit. And uh, I like that when, the clown has to go off and really put some heavy thought into something and build a consensus. It's him plus all of his circus sycophants getting together for a team huddle. And it seems to give Starfleet and the native aliens some breathing room to have some open discussion. I think right there was what you just said is the reason why the bit with dropping the clue without the program noticing kind of works because they establish that this program isn't so sophisticated that it can instantaneously do things there's a data compression issue it has to take time before it realizes what's going on and it can be distracted so as a consequence because it was distracted in talking to the doctor it didn't quite pick up on the thought that what he was dropping was at that time uh, a clue it only occurs to him once you know whoever did it sees the effect of the clue taking place and starts thinking about it and he goes oh fuck you did this shit um so i kind of liked that i thought that was a clever understated way of explaining the the limitations of the uh of the program the clue that they gave was i forget some sort of neural capacitors or whatever the techno babble is. There's it was some techno babble that gets techno babbled into an answer that they can basically turn these off things, doohickeys, wabadoodles, circuits, one by one. But there's four. And if they do so, they can therefore turn the program off and everybody just comes out fine. Yeah. And there's 40 of them. They've got a time limit. I think that she, uh, Belana was going to have to disable 40 of these pathways in under two minutes or something. Uh, Janeway says, go for it. And she starts knocking these things offline. And each one she does takes an element out of the simulation. So the clown is busy arguing with Harry about some other shit. Meanwhile, the cast and the set pieces are disappearing around him until finally he becomes aware uh, what what the ruse is. And like you said, he turns to the leader and says, you did this. You screwed me. And now you're going to pay the price. And they drag him off to the guillotine. And, uh, you know, Cass is like, hey, this guy's uh, heart rate spiking hard. And, you know, he's probably in trouble in the virtual environment. Uh, what are we going to do? 
and they are in the real world when the guillotine drops and this guy dies. And there's like five more subroutines to go. Like we're talking about 10 seconds more of work. And it's Jane Jayway's like, no, stop. We've lost. Put it all back online. Like it was such a, a shitty point for her to lose her backbone on this. Yeah. I mean, she was on the, the, the very precipice of success, like a few seconds and you're good. And you know, you lost one of them, but that's, that sucks, but you're about to to be victorious anyway, and then just quits. It was a, a poorly written scene. Uh, Janeway losing her nerve in the way that she did didn't make any sense in what they wrote, but you know, neither does the fact that they're in this situation to begin with because they decided to download their brains to an alien matrix on a whim without preparation. Where they know people die. Where they know people die. It was still it was a very hard pill to swallow. Janeway is very stubborn as a character, I think. And uh, that moment was a particular low point for Janeway based on everything we've seen. Uh, You know, maybe had he caught on after like one or two systems went off, it'd be a different story. But whatever it is, what it is. Janeway, who's like, you know, she's upset because she's super breathy with her voice when talking to the doctor about what to do. You know, they they discuss other options that they can execute on the you know they discussed like hey we can pull everybody out they're gonna have brain damage i might be able to fix it but i might not brain stuff is weird you can bring people back to life from the dead just let them die in the tubes bring them back to life i'm sure you can recitate after a heart attack no big deal they they cut away before they discuss any like solid plans because you know you got to make sure we get at least one more scene of a fantastic uh Cirque Soleil sexy dance party at the Holiday Inn. And, uh, you know, they're all all the the uh, the program and the 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 clown and his posse are in the midst of their celebration of all of the new tortures. They're going to rain down on Harry and his friends when the doctor shows up one more time and says, here's the deal in exactly one minute. We're going to go ahead and just try our luck with pulling him out. We know it might hurt him, but that's better than leaving him in here to be tortured forever with you. So that's what we're going to do. However, you have until the end of this minute to accept an alternative plan. And that alternative plan is you get to keep one person. That one person will be Captain Janeway. It's either that or we're just going to spin the wheel and see if we can get them out of here without reverting him to, to Lenny Brains. Spin the wheel is a quote out of a uh, riddle box by ICP. So good one there, Joe. <laughs> ah, uh, you know, you denied being a, a juggalo. Before. I'm not a juggalo. I'm a, a scholar. <laughs> and I will have, you know, my juggalo studies have paid off many times in real life. I've. And clearly they've reaped a D of dividends for you on this. It's yeah. good. It's good. 10 out of 10. Yeah, I love it. This ending did not sit well with me. Um, the rush decision to kind of bully him into, you know, taking the captain, not really seeing what they were fleshing out and what the end game plan was going to be. Clown has uh, his VR environment gets scrubbed clean. You know, he's real excited about meeting this Captain Janeway now. He believes that, you know, it's going to be an even trade. And his initial misgivings about only having one person um to basically hinge his entire existence on have been wiped clean in the face of you know 
forced oblivion if Starfleet pulls these people out. So Janeway beams in. She's real smug. Uh, he wants to talk with her some more, but she's like, no, let the hostages go. And, you know, you oh, got let's, me. Let's be let's be clear. Janeway immediately violates personal distance with this guy. I mean, we got to be clear. In even in this environment, Janeway is not down with 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 providing that that bubble. Uh, you know, for for close talking, she's right in this guy's face, boob to chest immediately. Yeah, some real deep talking to. She's like, bah, 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 bah. super breathy, very breathy in this. It's episode. like a cat purring right up on him. Um, <laughs> and he's in a rush. He lets everybody else get out of there and. Even before we get this scene, this is this is back in Med Bay with Janeway feeling particularly defeated because the one miner or the one um, colonist had died. She goes in this long diatribe about, you know, what is fear? How do you conquer fear? What does fear want? How does she establish a victory condition? Did you take anything away from that scene? It all felt like a bunch of nonsense to me. It was forced. It was very forced. The dialogue itself was was cheesy. I got the idea behind it as to because it's this raw emotion, it can be nip- manipulated in the same way that raw emotion often is. And therefore, it sees a challenge. Like, I feel like they used the wrong argument. Yeah. And it would have if they had just said, I knew you would take the deal because you see me as far more of a challenge and that that. And it excites you to inspire fear in me. Obviously, Harry Kim, these three people you've tortured your for for decades, they're not they're not exciting anymore. I'm exciting to you. Like if that had been the dialogue, mm-hmm. bought it a hundred percent. Um, you know, but and the dialogue as she reveals the sort of the uh, the 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 and that Shyamalanian twist at the end, not really. Is that, well, wouldn't you know it, Janeway isn't actually there. Thank you. I needed that. I had, I, you know, I had that ready for you. I needed it. And this is just a holographic projection of her, and they have put her brainwaves in a place where he can read them without putting her in a system. They don't explain how they did any of this, but it doesn't matter. And, you know, as as the program starts to wind down, which is the only cool lighting, well, all of our bitching about lighting, here's some good lighting mm-hmm. where the program starting to fail is represented with the lights slowly going out in the scene as the dialogue continues. And it's basically the clown fading out of existence. Where the clown is is expressing fear and, you know, the hologram is explaining to him, you know, Fear wants to be conquered. That was I. I didn't care for that. Although I thought the the ending lines were pretty baller. I'm afraid. Uh, uh, no. No. <laughs> that, that so the the episode ends just with uh, you know the clown saying I'm afraid, and then like you can barely see any of Janeway because you know she's engulfed in shadow. She's like I know. <laughs> it was such a cheesy way to end. I mean. You might as well just go ahead and sound drop uh, Han and Leia. And I love you. I know. It's this 
here's the evil male clown and, you know, female Janeway has outsmarted him and she's rubbing his nose in it. And it's this real emasculating moment for the clown. And Janeway is just stewing in her smugness that she got him. And it seems like such a cheap, shitty win because they just completely pull whatever this switcheroo they did out of left field with no technological basis. Like if they were capable of popping people into this environment without really plugging them in, why didn't they do that in the first place? I get what they were trying to do dramatically. It didn't fit with anything that we had established in the episode earlier. And it just came off as needless and cheesy. Um, <clears throat> I'm glad we didn't have to actually have any more interaction with these stupid miners. The the one the the male uh, colonist who survives all this. Did you get that uh, Brendan Fraser and Sino Man vibe off of him with that like heavy eyebrow ridge he had in his like uh, '90s hair? <laughs> I have now. You're right. Yeah. There is a there is a Brendan Fraser from Encino Man quality to him. Yeah, good it's spot. Very, yeah, it's good. That's a good spot. I, it took me a long time to put two and two together. See where I was getting it, but I guess it was an okay send off for uh, Michael McKean. And uh, I could have done without Janeway being super smug. I think there might have been some more fun ways to to resolve this, but whatever. They wanted to tell an abstract story about fear and conquering it, and this is what we got. I I liked the very end. I thought the the dialogue was 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 cool. I cheesy, absolutely. But that's the parts of it that I liked. Everything with Mike McKean is just solid gold. Amazing, fun to watch. Uh, unlike last week's episode, I heartily recommend watching this one. Because you have to see it for yourself. You have to see how how completely ridiculous it is to truly appreciate what we're telling you. When I tell you that they walk into the Holiday Inn of their worst, you know, sex pervert nightmares filled with Cirque Soleil dancers and, you know, one of the guys that uh, was in This Is Spinal Tap. Um, I'm not kidding. That's actually the episode. It's Groove in the Heart by Delight. Just just watch the music video and you'll you'll get most of this episode. I think that you had the potential for an amazing episode. If if they redid this episode with 2018 storytelling methods and you were willing to get like real dark and real twisted that they could have had a legit scary mind bender uh on the table. And I think they just got caught up in 90s crappiness and it's funny because you know you take uh what was the kess episode where uh they meet the other caretaker oh the uh yeah no i know which one you're talking about the the one that uh has gary graham in it the one where tuvok gets microwaved yes and you know people are pinned to the scene i mean that's a legit kind of horror episode you know um they can go in some very scary directions it's just like I think they went too high concept uh, for what should have been a dark and scary episode. And I think it missed a lot of beats because of that. All right, man. What are we going to see next time? I'm fucking pumped. 
Coming up next, season two, episode 24. I've been waiting a long time for this, Joe. I've seen a lot of stuff on the internet over the past year, and uh, I am ready for this. We got Harry, Kim, and Hogan standing in what looks like the transporter room. Harry's got a phaser out, uh, and they both have a real what-the-fuck look on their face. Episode 24, Tuvix. Tuvok and Neelix are on an alien planet collecting samples of flora. But when they attempt to beam back up, there's a malfunction with the transporter. Well, we are getting into some of the more uh, famous slash infamous episodes of the show. We got Threshold still in our quiver. And yeah, Tuvix, I have really looked forward to the day we would rewatch this one because I am interested in my feelings on it now. Like... I haven't watched it in a long time. I never really watched it with a critical eye. And uh, it's one of the favored talking points of all Voyager fans is if the decisions made in this episode were the correct ones or not. So we're about to embark uh, on that journey, my friend. I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to it, too. I got a, I think, appropriate rule of acquisition. So I'm going to bust it out on this one. Do it. Clown had a couple offers on the table uh, with this neural brain, which I think is something we need to save for uh, the season two rip. I think there's some discussion points about what exactly is a neural brain. Uh, But, you know, he was given a couple opportunities to survive on this thing without continuing to torture people. And if he knew Harry, Kim and Bellana as well as we were led to believe with this Neuralink, he should know that Starfleet doesn't lie and preserves life forms in all forms. But uh, here he is with the uh, Ferengi rule of acquisition number 10. Greed is eternal. Guy wouldn't take any negotiation. He wanted the gold all the way and he went down with a ship for it. Greed was eternal until he got shit-talked by a, a Janeway hologram into oblivion. Mm-hmm. Also, go watch Better Call Saul. It's a good show. Yeah, I got to watch the season finale. It's, uh, it's sitting upstairs. I'm afraid someone's going to spoil it on the internet. Ooh, that, okay, I won't. I think that's what we're going to do here tonight is uh, finish that one off. Well, I won't keep you. Uh, Peter, it's been a pleasure as always uh, to our listeners. We deeply appreciate all of the uh, interaction we've been seeing lately uh, on our Facebook group, the Vija Please Trauma Support. Anyone, the sound of my voice is welcome to join. Uh, we have our normal Facebook page where we do updates. Feature, please. We're on Twitter. We are, have a YouTube channel where everything gets uploaded and where we do some live streams. Did you see one of the new people we had jump in the uh, the trauma support group was from fucking Berlin, Germany? We are international. Ooh, we're internet. This is an international journey through time and space. And I like pain it. and suffering and lulls. And until next time, friends, I am Joseph. To our German listeners. Uh, Avita Huron, that's goodbye. That's, that's I'm pandering great. to our new fans. Damn it, Joe. you did great. You did great. That's six years of German there. <laughs> Peace. <laughs>